Digital Drift, episode 60, recorded Thursday the 3rd of April 2014, Daredevil. Daredevil. The, the movie. Are you here to confirm that Daredevil is responsible for this, Detective? There is no proof that Daredevil even exists. He can hear it before it makes a sound. He can sense it before it happens. He can vanish before you realize he's there. And he's the last person you'd ever expect. Police suspect the vigilante Daredevil was the one to bring the criminals to justice. I don't know why you read that trash. You want the truth? Tell me. She's hideous. Excuse me. I just wanted to get your name. Does every guy have to go through all this to find out your name? You should try asking for my number. I've been following that piece you wrote about the kingpin. How do you kill a man without fear? And the bodies in the Give me bullseye. The devil's mine. Justice is found here before justice finds you. How can you be a skeptic? If there's no eyewitness. I mean, you know, Bigfoot has eyewitnesses. Oh, please. Continuing our deep dive into the Marvel superhero movies, we have gone all the way down to 2003's Daredevil, a film reviled by critics, 45% on Rotten Tomatoes, sneered at by audiences who had just seen the first Spider-Man movie, a film with a theatrical cut that doesn't make a lick of sense and stars a fresh Hollywood golden boy whose name soon becomes... (laughs) I've got Net Man in there. And I, star- I think that kind of made sense. Golden yeah. boy man. <laughs> and stars a fresh Hollywood golden boy man whose name soon became synonymous with bad performances and bad movies. This being the one cited most often after Gili. Despite its mountainous flaws, it's also a passionately put together fan project. Compromised by jittery Fox executives angling for their own wall crawler, improved with the director's cut and worthy of a second look after all these years of big screen superheroes, especially with the upcoming Netflix show in the works. We talk often about the span of five or so super creative years marking the Silver Age at Marvel, but let's take a quick look at a chronological list to see where Daredevil fits. So, November 61, Fantastic Four. May 62, The Incredible Hulk. August 62, The Mighty Thor. August 62, The Amazing Spider-Man. March 63, The Invincible Iron Man. July 63, Doctor Strange. September 63, The Uncanny X-Men. September 63, The Avengers. March 64, Captain America was reintroduced. April 64, Daredevil. And March 66, The Silver Surfer. So it's at the tail end of this period... And again, this was a Stan Lee joint with Bill Everett on art duties originally. 
So this was at the point of the creative period that the Marvel Universe had now begun to really take shape and these books proceeded apace with the characters jumping in and out of one another's books. Blind lawyer Matt Murdock and his vigilante alter ego Daredevil appeared in Spider-Man and various other comics. His costume for the first six issues was a yellow and red number, reminiscent of a circus acrobat and made from his father's boxing uniform. But by issue seven, they had more of a handle on the character or enough kids had sent in letters and said, Stan, we don't like the yellow costume. To which point he said, how about we make it red then? That's the amount of focus grouping that went on in those days. Also, wouldn't yellow and red be somewhat confused with Iron Man? I suppose it would, actually. But at the time, Iron Man was wearing the all-gold ensemble with a skirt. Ah. Anyway, uh, so they went for the all-red ensemble... Mixing in connotations of a conflicted Catholic appearing as a street-level devil to terrify evildoers. Although they didn't really ramp up the Catholicism until Miller appeared. Unlike Spidey, who ranges across all of Manhattan, the Fantastic Four, who traverse alternate dimensions, and the Avengers, who battle world threats, Matt's battleground has always been in Hell's Kitchen, New York, his childhood home and an area troubled by very personal and violent crime that goes unnoticed by the more high-profile heroes. This character is also a rare, empowering creation of comics for those living with blindness. Daredevil, like Toph Beifong, is a blind badass. Since 1964, many visually impaired comic book fans have followed his adventures, inspired and excited to be given someone they can relate to in their specific circumstances. Tom Sullivan, the sight-impaired consultant for the movie, describes being without sight as a continuous search for freedom. By default, you are trapped in a way most people are not. In a world whose boundaries and details you have to come to terms with in different ways to everyone else. You find these freedoms in sport and entertainment and personal connections, same as the rest of the world. But each time this happens in big or small ways, it alleviates that feeling of being trapped. Conversely, as with Daredevil, though not to the same superhuman degree, the remaining senses are heightened and sharpened to differing degrees, given more freedom due to the absence of sight. You have to be a detective, interpreting your world from clues that regular people might miss, and there is always the challenge of not being defined by one's lack of sight, but instead incorporating that into one facet of yourself. This movie also offers up a tough, strong female character, the equal of the male lead, and in the kingpin, both a powerful, self-possessed black man, granted a ruthless crime boss, but also a great character, most definitely depicted as being extremely hefty. Daredevil is nothing if not diverse. Like the Uncanny X-Men had done in the early 70s, the Daredevil comic ran up to the early 80s and was suffering from a decline, seemingly living forever in the arachnid's shadow. Then Frank Miller, who had previously lent penciling duties, took over as a creative driver and rewrote Matt's entire backstory, introducing Spider-Man villain the Kingpin as his new arch-nemesis. On a side note, this guy was basically a joke. He was like a big, fat crime boss, and he wasn't supposed to be particularly visually imposing. It was Miller who made this guy physically, genuinely intimidating and powerful. And with that, he brought in a smorgasbord of ninjas along with Elektra. Later writers included Kevin Smith, who penned the loopy but emotional Guardian Devil, and the painterly stylings of David Mack, who created the deaf assassin Echo. 
and then a long one from my personal favourite, Brian Michael Bendis, who dealt with Matt Murdock being outed as Daredevil to the public. Just out of interest, was the introduction of the ninjas uh, at all close in time to Wolverine suddenly being beset by ninjas on all sides? He basically jumped from uh, Daredevil. Uh, He was doing Wolverine while he was doing Daredevil. Uh, and um, the ninjas all seem to turn up at once in the Marvel Universe. And I think, I think <laughs> Got a bit ha- of a fixation, did he? The hand were introduced in Daredevil and then brought across to Wolverine. Gotcha. So, okay. yeah, yeah, what, Frank Miller's got a fixation with ninjas? No shit. <laughs> <laughs> but that, in turn, inspired the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which were done by Eastman and Laird in their own underground comic, parodying Frank Miller with the foot ninjas. Oh, of course. Yeah. Daredevil has never been and will never be the most popular hero. He never got a cartoon, his own action figure line, a video game, apart from the crappy Game Boy Advance adaptation of this movie. Which, by the way, uh, is on YouTube. Somebody completed it in 15 minutes. Ew. Part of his appeal lies in the appreciation of his B-list status. That makes him a man who always has to struggle. Because of the moral slaloming he has gone through over the years, he appears on the whole as a man always in search of the right thing to do, but always trying to protect the people nobody wants to notice. In the late 90s, before Blade proved it could be done, Fox was on track to deliver a Daredevil movie, and at the time, the director attached was Chris Columbus, Bicentennial Man, Nine Months, Mrs. Doubtfire. Marvel was, at the time, facing bankruptcy, and Fox eventually allowed the rights to expire. Daredevil was picked up by Disney. Ironically, the exact same thing happened last year. That time, however, Disney let it drop, and Sony Columbia picked it up. Then Sony got the Spider-Man license and dropped Daredevil like fifth-period French. During that time, Mark Stephen Johnson, who later went on to direct Ghost Rider, which we pretty much have to review at some point, had written a script which was approved by Ain't It Cool News, who were very popular back in the day, and producer Kevin Feige, who currently safeguards the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was seen as darker and edgier than your average superhero story. Regents, this is basically following on from, you know, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, so that they were your average superhero story at the time. Regency eventually picked Daredevil up with Fox on distribution, so it came full circle, and Johnson got the directing gig as well as the script. Some months into filming, Spider-Man hit theatres in May 2002 and took $821 million at the box office. Fox panicked and the theatrical edit that eventually emerged on a tight deadline of February 2003 was a trim 103 minutes long. The director's cut that emerged a few years later on DVD is 133 minutes, suggesting half an hour or a quarter of a movie hacked out to keep the story focused on superhero action and less on the overarching legal case leading up to the arrest of the Kingpin. And yes, when you watch the two side by side, the longer story is most definitely the more involving, though long-time haters are probably not going to change their minds on this one. Those who might like to try it again will find much to enjoy. However, even in its extended version, we're very aware of what a mess this film is. In the words of Ben Affleck, The only movie I actually regret is Daredevil. It just kills me. I love that story, the character, and the fact that it got fucked up the way it did stays with me. Maybe that's part of the motivation to do with Batman. He had vowed never to play another costumed crime fighter again, and then he was cast as Batman and very wisely said yes. Either way, it's been burning at him. 
Unlike George Clooney, though, who uh, always says, oh, yeah, I, I, I killed Batman, and very humbly pretends that Batman and Robin was all his fault, Ben Affleck was like, ah, it's not my fault, it was a shit movie. Yes and no. There's problems with Affleck throughout. However, even the best casting in the world, like if you remember, do you remember the two guys who were also in the running for playing Daredevil at this point? Oh, I got no clue. Well, first off, Matthew McConaughey. Oh, God, yes. No, all I do right, remember right. him being bandied about. Oh, yes, my. I do. See, now he. I love these ninjas. I get older, they stay the same age. God. <laughs> he would have been a good. Murdoch. Uh, Murdoch, mm. but I don't know whether oh. he'd been much cop as Daredevil. People didn't like how smug Ben Affleck was as Daredevil. You want to fucking cast McConaughey? <laughs> However. If you yep. don't want smug, you don't hire Affleck. The other guy who ended up doing this other film uh, was Matt Damon. This other film being The Born Identity. Good choice. Mm-hmm. So I actually think Matt Damon could have done a better, a better job than Affleck at, in this character, even with this script. I think it felt a bit more grounded. Yes, quite possibly. I could see him doing the courtroom scenes. Mm. Okay, well, yeah, he was in The Rainmaker with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Danny DeVito. My first question, why do people blame Affleck for this entire movie? Because people like to blame Affleck for everything. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he had a really bad year. I mentioned Gigli before. The other film he did in 2003 was Paycheck, which he literally did for the paycheck. Not to mention the fact that his personal life was going down the tubes at this stage. Um, he was still with one of his Jennifers when he was doing Daredevil. It wasn't actually... Apparently, the, uh, the Jennifer Garner romance didn't spring up until Electra. Yeah, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm, people say that about Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt as well. Yeah, okay. Well... Look, if there'd been any romance, we'd have fucking seen it on screen. That is a fair <laughs> Although, no, 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 don't they always say you can tell if the leads are actually boffing each other because there's no chemistry on scene, cause, on set, because they're working it all out elsewhere. I don't know. I, I think she sells a bit more of the attraction than he does. I think... I noticed when I was watching it again today that um, he does... And because this is watching the director's cut, there's a lot more... Um, uh, quieter, lengthier scenes and he tends to brood a bit more Matt when he's miserable Affleck's actually not bad at mm. it's Matt when he's all cocky and ha having some fun that he's he's almost unbearable to watch I do wonder actually if part of it and this, this is maybe going a little bit deeper than we need to considering that it's Ben Affleck mm. um, but I do wonder if part of it is that he just had no frame of reference to portray how you appreciate a woman that you can't see well, you smell her. Oh, he does that. God, he comes off as creepy at that point. <laughs> Just a little bit. But but it, actually, see, this is where it totally relies on her to sell the fact that it's not creepy as hell. Yeah. <clears throat> so hang on, I'm just going to take off my shirt. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Wolverine. Sorry, I thought it was Hugh Jackman. Can I turn off this heating? I'm boiling, burning up. It's all right. It's a bit warmer in here now. It was freezing in here. That's why I asked you to put it on. But it's... Right. Uh, yeah, I will reiterate this. The amount of shit that got poured out about Batfleck when that happened was cringe-inducing to listen to. Uh, 
principally down to the fact that obviously Affleck has done a ton of stuff, including directing and some really decent performances since then. And, and dredging up Daredevil and saying, this is what he's going to be like. There's, there are plenty of actors who were shit to begin with and then just got better and better. Take Matthew McConaughey. Please. Leonardo DiCaprio, for example. When he started out, most men really didn't like him. But by, you know, then he did a few roles where he beefed up, did a bit of fighting, and suddenly he won their respect. So you hear DiCaprio's playing Batman. Oh, that's fine. But for some reason, you know, you wouldn't be sort of dredging up Titanic or Romeo and Juliet. Indeed. When I apply for a job now, people don't criticize the fact that I was a bad waitress 15 years ago. No. But I think there's a straightforward comparison because this film screams Batman. It screams Batman, but also because it feels so 90s, it kind of whispers Spawn as well. I, I never really got that, but then I never really knew Spawn all that much. For me, it, it's basically like Batman, Spider-Man, Batman, Spider-Man, Batman, Spider-Man. Yeah. Oh, and The Crow as well. Bit of that. Uh, there's some Punisher in there as well, and it's, it, it's effectively whatever you're going to get when you have your, your bad Dark Angel avenging vigilante who kills rapists, you're going to get that, unless you have a very careful director like Christopher Nolan. It feels like... Well, let's start off with the Spidey comparisons. It feels like there were a lot of extra bits of Daredevil bouncing off walls added in post in the theatrical edit, which obviously made it into the director's cut as well because they're now part of the film and and thus um, ingrained, which feel like just these really ropey, we don't really have the budget for this, Spider-Man knockoff moments. The best bits of CGI in this look like the worst bits of CGI in Spider-Man. There is a lot of it that looks incredibly rushed. It, it looks like they haven't had time to even make it look acceptable, let alone polish it. When the door shuts, don't worry about me. It's not attention that I want from you. I need you to trust who I'm gonna So let's start off with young Matt's origin story, uh, which uh, what we'll do is rather than um, uh, do the theatrical and then uh, director's cut, which is what we we toyed with to begin with, we'll weave the director's cut stuff in where it's relevant and simply effectively review the director's cut and point out where the shortcomings of the theatrical cut lie. it's important to note that Director's Cut is not a wonderful film. It's not a brilliant film. And when the first time we saw it way back in 2003 or four or whenever it came out on, on DVD, we were unimpressed. And I think I actually got rid of it straight away. I was like, that doesn't necessarily improve a film that I actually quite enjoyed in theatrical run anyway. I just felt that they uh, made it longer and more boring with they didn't add any more kick-ass fight scenes because I was an idiot back then. You were not an idiot, sweetie. You were 23. Three. Still, bit of an idiot. But uh, yeah, um, it's all about the fight scenes, isn't it? When you're a kid, when you're 23, 
you were still Matrix influenced. Yeah, very much so. But I mean, it wasn't just the fighting in the Matrix that I liked. It was a very, very smart movie. And he, you know, I, I made quite a lot of excuses for Daredevil when it came out. I got into Daredevil as a result of this movie. I got into the comics and uh, I bought, uh, yeah, pretty much the first what, 30, 40 issues of the run that started around this time. So um, the, the Smith issues, the Mac issues, the Bendis run. And at the time, uh, the comparative uh, comics that were coming out were things like the Ultimate Comics and uh, uh, New Avengers. So it was really a good time for Marvel because this was when it became about writer-driven books and not about artist-driven books. Um, On the actual DVD, uh, Bendis talks about how he worked in a comic store throughout the 90s and he was... uh, People were coming in to buy the new issue of Spawn or whatever. And um, because every page was a giant splash page of whatever dark hero was leaping through the air with his cape flying and his giant guns out, they couldn't remember whether they'd bought the most recent issue or the one before that or the new one. or They couldn't tell one from the other. And they couldn't tell one book from the other. And it frustrated the hell out of Bandis, who actually obviously prized decent writing. Now, that's not to say that the Daredevil film is not replete with splash pages, so to speak. But it's nowhere near as bad as everybody else who seems to remember it, with, uh, like, like it's this fucking pox on the superhero genre, like it's Batman and Robin, like it's, it's, the, the, the name is synonymous with cinematic awful and an offense to the genre. That's in the theatrical. It's not as bad in the theatrical version. It's not as good in the director's cut to really elevate it above most of the best fare. Mm. But if nothing else, it gave John Favreau a foot in the door. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of significant, actually, because when he's riffing with um, uh, Affleck and it actually feels very much off the cuff and very naturalistic, it's, we're seeing the prototype for Iron Man there. And what made Iron Man great was that sense of um, immediacy to the speech and the sense that you're seeing something unfolding rather than just very stagey blah 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 speech which this very much comes off as at times people deliver some cringe inducing lines and that's another thing you could recast this whole film and they've still got to deal with the script written by Mark Stephen Johnson the director however it is also a fan script because he's a big fan of the Daredevil comics so there's this really weird balance to it. It's rubbish, but it's passionate rubbish. You can tell the opposite of that. The Transformers scripts openly mocks geeks. Michael Bay and whoever writes for him have uh, nothing but distaste and disdain for the geek crowd. Daredevil is a film made for geeks. It's filled with so many nods and winks and clicks towards the comic that it's, it's just like there for you to be noting stuff down. I suppose that's why it felt so gratifying. After watching Spider-Man, where it was most definitely written for uh, and uh, produced for mainstream audiences, um, this felt a bit more one for the comic book fans. If that makes sense. Yes.
So yeah, uh, young Matt's origin story. You said this guy was better than Tobey Maguire. I did, yes. Uh, Scott Terra, the uh, the kid who plays Matt as a child. Um, the the bit that specifically caused me to write that down um, was actually the scene in the hospital mm-hmm. uh, where he wakes up with the bandages over his eyes because we'd we'd specifically commented about. Toby Maguire that he had to have the mask off so that you could see him emoting and he still wasn't emoting um, Terra manages to convey complete confusion and disorientation and uh, panic and trauma with his eyes bandaged mm. which is pretty impressive um, but he, he did this whole segment he does really well um, he, I mean it opens with him um, uh, forming this very close relationship with uh, his father who, I mean, despite Jack's somewhat lacklustre attempts at parenting in the first few scenes, um, he does come across as quite a sympathetic father figure. It's made clear that he wants better for his son than he had himself, um, which is something that I think is you, you can kind of click with that. Mm. Um, and I, I think there are quite a few little nods and winks, more so in the director's cut, but even in the um, even in the theatrical cut, that show how influential his father was on him. A note on the Blu-ray: the uh, we watched the the, the the theatrical cut is not available on Blu-ray, and that's a good thing because uh, you want to be able to soak in and appreciate what's been added to it uh, for the Blu-ray. But the Reds. Uh, in the in the HD version are absolutely gorgeous and Jack the Devil Murdoch's uh, boxing robe is um, beautifully significant as the uh, future garb of uh, his son. Yeah, there's a, a lot of references with that as well. That um, when he comes out for the last fight, he's got the hood of the the robe down over his eyes. Yeah, um, which obviously foreshadows how. Uh, Matt's mask will cover his own eyes up Um, but if you look at the way um, Jack moves, the way he walks Matt as an adult mimics that and you can see in um, sort of the 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 battering that he's taken being Daredevil, the scars that he's carrying, the fact that his body is steadily becoming knackered by the, um, the activities that he engages in in spite of his father saying to him, don't be like me, be a lawyer or be a doctor, you know, do something to help people that's that's intellectual and academic. Matt basically ends up walking with a foot on each tightrope. He's He does both. He does the lawyer thing because that's what his dad wanted. But ultimately, he becomes his father as well. He t- takes on his um, uh, using fighting abilities to achieve what he wants. It's a seesaw in this film. <laughs> I want it because of the seesaws in the uh, park, which were not meant to symbolise anything. Um, <laughs> it's at the beginning. He is non-committal to the lawyer game, and uh, he's seen too many guys slip through the cracks. And he pretty much uh, just turns up in court and goes, uh, spits some shit about uh, justice being blind and uh, out, bickers with the uh, defence lawyer, and then the case gets thrown out, and he- he's lost. And he's—it seems like he. This happens to him far too often. And then he's straight on with the costume, and he goes out to murder Jose Casada, the unrepentant rapist. 
Because that's what he's leaning heavily on at the beginning, the punishment side of things. He is effectively the Punisher, who in the comics, Daredevil, because it's Marvel Knights, and that's where the slightly more adult stuff lies, um, they tend to move in one another's circles. Uh, So he ideologically opposes the Punisher's uh, standpoint of murder these guys before they can hurt anybody else. So at the beginning, they made the adolescently appealing decision to have Matt Murdock as Daredevil murder uh, people that he is convinced are rapists and uh, liars and murderers who slip through the cracks in the legal system. You compared him to Dexter? Um, yeah, in the sense that he he has his own set of parameters for what he decides means somebody's guilty. Mm. Um, that he works within a legal framework that he acknowledges is flawed um, he doesn't believe in innocent until proven guilty. He doesn't believe in, um, you know, once you've been acquitted in a, by a jury of your peers, that means that you're, uh, you know, you must be free left alone. From, yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you're free from um, any further aspersions or anything like that. Well, he's able to, t- because he's in a rarefied position to know when people are lying. It, it's kind of he's thinks, tortured by that. He thinks, but ultimately, the scene further down the line with the pacemaker shows uh, that he's not always right. In the director's cut, he is fooled by a fellow's heart beating evenly when it uh, he should have been uh, beating fast because he has a pacemaker. Absolutely. And how many times has that caught him out before? And this is the first time he's noticed. How many times That's... has he interviewed somebody who is either under the influence of drugs or has a heart condition or has something else or is just scared shitless and so he's getting a reaction that he interprets as lying but isn't so yeah the overarching matt murdoch slash daredevil arc throughout this movie is in the director's cut he slowly refocuses his mission on detective work and uh, he gets to the kingpin through uh rooting out his crimes and bringing them to light in a uh a way that works within the system that he can do as a lawyer and aid as Daredevil and thus decides at the end not to take vengeance, not to kill the kingpin, even though he also apparently kills Bullseye. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, he basically journeys from a man who will freely kill because the system doesn't work to a man who will rely on the system and help the system but not kill and only maim or seriously injure. Indeed. In the theatrical cut, he beats a man nearly to death, and then his boy cries, and he says, I'm not the bad guy. And at the very end, he decides not to kill the kingpin because he's not the bad guy. That's how simplistic they make that side of Matt's arc. In the theatrical cut, he doesn't even have an arc. He just decides there is good and there is evil, and I'm going to be the good guy, which kind of gets introduced clumsily at the end. Like it's this, it's. it's I suppose it's sort of twinned in with the whole Catholic idea of good and evil and everything being very much in black and white. Whereas Daredevil really works in a world of very much shades of grey. Very dark grey, but grey nevertheless. But he himself is dark grey in this. Absolutely. Because most of what he does is at night. The bright red of his costume is very muted the whole way through. You you don't get that colour. It's almost. Um, it appears almost black. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the, the there are lots of um, 
visual cues. I mean, one of the things that I really liked about this, and it, it's impossible not to compare it to Spider-Man, even if we weren't doing it as a, uh, Fox a point for the podcast. invited the comparison. Indeed. Um, but um, whereas Spider-Man, I felt, relied extremely heavily on exposition, um, there's a lot more of the visual storytelling that appealed to me about the X-Men um, in Daredevil. And there's... Uh, there's detail. There is... Oh, my God, is there detail. And it doesn't really... Although it is stronger in the director's cut, it's still there in the theatrical cut. You just kind of have to clear away some of the chaff and reorganise some of the bits to make it um, as as strong as it proves to be in the director's cut. But there are visual... Well, the director's cut has extended scenes. So that basically, in a lot of the time, it seemed like they were so in such a rush to get to the fights mm. that they cut what appears to be the point of a lot of the scenes. Because Absolutely. it was like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Absolutely. But a, a lot of the characterization for Matt is uh, is to do with what he surrounds himself with. And you've got um, specifically things like the sensory deprivation tank that he apparently sleeps in um, because the um, overload that he gets from the sound of the city that he cannot block out by any other means... It, He's got all of this crime and, and uh, desperation and violence and aggression around him, and he needs some way to cut that off. Yeah. But by doing that, he's increasing his own isolation. He Everything about his house is he's alone. He's totally um, separated from um, this community that he supposedly is defending, but he has no real connection to it. One thing that I noticed in the, the differences between the um, uh, the theatrical and the director's cut is, is to do with the church scenes. Now, are we am I okay to talk about this here? Or oh yeah, yeah go for it. Um, in the theatrical cut, um, there's a scene where Matt goes to confession, and it becomes apparent that his priest knows he's Daredevil, and they have a conversation about it. And it's it, it's a nice scene, and there's a, a little bit of humour in there. But effectively, what that does is it shows Matt as directly linked to the community that he serves that's where the spawn element comes from because spawn most people might, may not know this uh, because spawns a very past it character that most people don't know about now but he lives or exists in an alley surrounded by uh derelicts and those are become the people that he wants to protect so it's very much kind of the the, the dealing with the people who uh, slip through the cracks and dealing with um uh, that side of things so it's that's where the spawn comparison comes gotcha. it's not necessarily a good comparison because spawn was a terrible comic <laughs> the church anchors him in the community but this the, the priest that there's he also the religious side Karen. talk to well i'll get to that in a second but 
he has somebody who That's knows who he is. He has someone who knows his um, his secret identity, somebody who he can share that burden with and relieve a little bit of that pressure. In the director's cut, it's the complete opposite. He goes to the church, but the priest doesn't know him um, or, or knows him from coming into church, but there is no confessional scene. There is nothing to, to suggest that he connects with the community through this church. In fact, he chooses to go during the week when there's nobody there. Um, and... It, it emphasizes his isolation rather than mitigating it. Um, and as far as the religious element goes, again, in the theatrical cut, he surrounds himself with all of this Catholic iconography. Um, and it, it seems to give him a base and a grounding and something that he can hang on to um, to keep him going when the overwhelming stink of the kitchen becomes too much in the director's cut he's surrounding himself with this imagery but it means nothing to him the only symbol that he has in his apartment that seems to have particular meaning for him is his father's boxing gloves yeah and it by being a system of, of faith that he has no faith in, that also then reflects the legal system that he has no faith in, despite the fact that he participates in it and he gets involved in the imagery of it, the, the uh, blind justice that's standing behind him when he's making his speeches. But he plays that system. He doesn't believe in it, not at that point. It's something that he, he grows to believe in. What do you think of the costumes in this film? They seem to have gone for a, a I hesitate to say a real look. Um, the outfits look like things that the the wearers could have put together through. I like that jacket. I'm going to get that in red and put it with this. Bullseye's clothes are off the rack type stuff. Um, Electra never really has a costume to speak of. Everything she wears look like street clothes, more or less. That's something I pointed out. Um, if When Bullseye says, I want a bloody costume, or in the director's card, he actually says, I want a fucking costume, it's kind of ironic because he's already wearing what costume he'll be wearing throughout the film. He doesn't get the costume from the Kingpin. If he was wearing a costume, it would be this sort of indigo bodysuit with a bullseye on the cowl forehead, which would look less out... Less outlandish and yet more than what he's currently wearing. I don't know. There's something about the fact that he's got the actual bullseye branded onto his head makes him really stand out. If you could wear their outfit to a Halloween party and be instantly recognisable as that character, it's a costume. Ergo, if you dressed as bullseye with the brand on the head, you're bullseye. No question about it, especially if you go to the trouble to shave your own head. If you dress as Daredevil, no one's going to debate the fact that you're Daredevil. If you dress as the X-Men, you'd have to have a distinct amount of X's on your off-the-rack biker leathers to make it apparent which X-Man you even are. Or some sort of affectation like Cyclops' visor or Wolverine's claws and the hair. Electra, unless you've got the sigh, that's just party clothes to go to the club and listen to new metal with. They balked on the idea of her reds and that um, uh, bandana of hers. And uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe because they wanted to make sure they kept the girls on side. This is so fucking sexist. Uh, the idea that the girls would go, ugh, what's she wearing? As opposed to, oh, she looks so badass in that. Which they would say, I believe. The kind of girls that would go and see this film would not 
be going, oh my God, what's she wearing? Good point. I, although, I don't think personally. It was Again, on I, I'm being wildly pigeonholing there, but yeah. um, yeah. either way, no. they, they botched the costume on that, and they didn't do much better for. Well, they gave a red for the uh, sequel. We'll talk about that soon. But no, Valentine's Day is not the day. Spin off, not a sequel. Um, the geeky people get to convince mm. their partners to come and see a geeky film with them. It's the day when everybody goes out to see whatever rom coms out this week. I. It's possible that this was released on Valentine's Day in a sort of nerd-targeted way of... You guys won't have dates. Here, go and see Daredevil. Or if you've got dates... You're lucky. Go and see Daredevil. (laughs) Maybe so. Well, you know, like I said, it's a film for the nerds. So, um, being complete and utter nerds, we were there on opening night, I think. But uh, uh, they, they locked them into this, uh, uh, this release date for February, which is kind of a, um, it's a dumping ground, really, isn't it? It's after Oscar season. It's before um, blockbuster season. It's, it's, it's kind of a nothing time. It's like, it's what, where you want to go if you want to underachieve. If they'd released in early May, they may have had a chance of, of scoring more. The actual uh, take on this one ended up being 179 million, which is not unrespectable cost 78 million though Mm. it didn't make much more hence their lukewarm interest in making a sequel spider-man cost twice as much to make at 140 and of course made 821 million but unfortunately as with the dark knight when you when you set that benchmark everyone has to hit that benchmark but yeah i bitch and i bitch and i bitch about the x-men costumes and i should bitch about daredevils because it looks big and leathery and stiff however you actually see Affleck and uh, his stuntmen fighting in that costume and really whirling about the place and like properly moving. So can I go ahead and say, looks like you can fight in it. Also makes sense that it would have leather padding. However, you said it would be very squeaky. It would be very squeaky. But then he hasn't had ninja training at this point, so he wouldn't necessarily know that as a ninja, you don't wear anything that's leather because it squeaks. True. <laughs> any ninjas out there write in tell us if, if you will yeah them. if we're wrong any any assassins that want to just you know most of my research comes from Terry Pratchett so you may have to call me on that one yeah. if they'd gone the other way and made it the uh, the the spandex which it uh, occasionally appears like he's wearing very skin tight bodysuit it would not have fit the the beefy punchy tone of this film at all or the beefy punchy tone of Ben Affleck yeah. Oh, he is quite chunky. And you did mention that um, that it, it, he's really just chucking himself around the place. And it, it seems like he's ill-suited to the role, you said? Um, not necessarily ill-suited to the role. What Basically, what they have Daredevil doing in CGI form does not seem like the kind of athletic feat that you would associate with somebody of Affleck's build. Well, that's he is a, a fine very... point, actually. If they literally have to cut to a CGI guy because Affleck can't make his body do that, they're probably pushing the character a bit too far. Yeah, but they, they were also pushing the CGI a bit too far. They, these, This is what I mean. The flips and kicks and rolling up the wall things, it wasn't necessary for them to put that in. Um, yes daredevil by the nature of what he does is you know rooftop to rooftop but he's not spider-man he's not swinging from 
I was going to say tree to tree, but you know what I mean. The, well, he does use his billy club thing. to swing around. Uh, it, it, there's some really awesome Casada art from the turn of the century of, uh, along those lines. But he, he has always supposed to have had a, a, a beefier build than mm. Spider-Man. But he's exactly. supposed to be so it's- lithe and graceful. Well, I, John Romita Jr. referred to Spider-Man as uh, awkward in terms of how he gets his legs all over the place. Yeah. Well, then he is supposed to look sort of, you know, spider-like and pointy. I mean, one thing that I thought really did work with Affleck's um, frame was he lands brilliantly. Yeah. Whenever Daredevil does a flip or a jump or something, when he hits the concrete again, my God, do you believe that? Well, yeah, that's because that's the real bit. The bit in between is the uh, the fallacy that they put together. Well, exactly. That's my point. It, where you can see the weight, that works. Mm. In which case, they would be advised in the future to, to keep it as, as CG-free as possible and have uh, the actor and the stuntmen perform as much humanly possible manoeuvres. I suspect they thought they could get away with more in this uh, than they possibly did because it's all dark. Yeah. Oh, no one will notice. It's all dark. Mm. This is reference quality millennial rubber, folks. If you want to see what we're talking about when we say millennial rubber, it's this. This oh, yes. and Blade 2. Mm. My God, is it in Blade 2. Also Marvel Knights. Uh, but, yeah, no, he's supposed to look like a circus performer, but uh, 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 an acrobat, but also a strong man. So it's, he, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't have that spindliness that Spider-Man's supposed to have. But again, yeah, when it comes down to it, the Daredevil costume could have been a lot worse. As could the Bullseye costume. The Electra costume, they just played it safe and went for the Matrix-style da- darks. And it was nondescript. It's the best way of describing it. I mean, ultimately, there's, there's nothing in the costumes that particularly breaks the immersion, which at this stage is important. Mm. the best thing in this oh yes i think he is actually he is fantastic um i can't i suppose it's kind of like ledger's joker you you suddenly gain more respect for the performance the moment they're not with us anymore but uh, i always liked michael clark duncan as the kingpin and i always hoped that he'd make more appearances simply because he dips in and out of spider-man as well 
Just because they put him in Daredevil didn't mean that he suddenly stopped appearing in the wall crawler stories. I love the fact that he pans both of them. And there have been four Spider-Man movies, and none of them contain Michael Clark Duncan. And that is a goddamn crime. It is. And frankly, my respect for for his performance of the role trebled when I saw the bit in the backstage doc Mm. uh, where he he said about his agent calling him to to offer him the part or, you know, to suggest that he, he... go for the part of uh, Kingpin and they wanted him for it and uh, he was talking about trying to play it really cool and yeah no I'm I'm got some other stuff going on but I'll I'll think about it and inside he's going yes yes because this was a role that he'd you know this was a character that he'd loved for years because it was a big bald guy Mm. which he didn't get to see a lot of people who looked like him in uh, in comic books and it's it is always nice when you get a, a a character in a medium that you adore who actually looks like you or, you know, is, is similar to you in some way. It's a point of connection. It's a show of good faith. Let's not mince words here to say you're a black actor that we believe is strong enough to be able to portray this character without enough, without people saying, eh, this doesn't work. He's black. Cause remember he'd done the green mile at this point. And it done Armageddon, so the blockbuster crowd had seen him. Yeah, I mean, I, there is that element that obviously they they would want him because he was recognisable. Um, but I think that by bringing in a black actor to play the kingpin, you add something to the character that he didn't have before. If you look at him in the comics, mm-hmm. um, and I will hold my hands. Finally, up the power's in the hands of the rich white man. Exactly. I mean, I I haven't read enough with the kingpin in it to say that this is entirely how he's characterized but again like with uh, norman osborne he does have a little bit of that it was the capitalist with the shifty eyes thing going on he you know he's he's running everything and he is the epitome of the, the person that you think is going to run everything he's a white guy he's wealthy he's powerful of course he's in charge of all the crime in new york by handing that off to somebody who doesn't fit that character template exactly you add another dimension to it that it is then up to the audience to read into what they want. And there really is only the one line that gives you any hint as to his um, his background and his upbringing. And that's the bit about, um, I was raised in the Bronx, Wesley, you wouldn't understand. Yeah. And that's that one. gives you... That's one of my absolute favourite lines of his. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and also, I suppose, the fact that you know he worked as, as basically... A hard man for Fallon when he was a younger man. So yeah, you he's someone who has he's... had to work his way up the ladder. Exactly. Clearly. You know he's worked his way to the position that he's got. Yeah. The biggest challenge for Duncan, especially for me, was uh, proving that he wasn't a big cuddly teddy bear as he had appeared previously. The, the idea is that, that he was now playing a ruthless stone cold villain and not somebody you'd like to know and, and get to know. And he genuinely ends up very threatening when it gets into the physical. Uh, confrontation because before that obviously he's he's doing the sort of smirking talking scheming stuff and in the director's cut he he slaughters his bodyguard so that you know from the off but you've already seen the film so it kind of doesn't matter but were this your first experience you know from the off off that he's a threat mm. however when it gets to the uh, the big fight at the end um he becomes someone that you'd be like oh my god if he got his hands on me he'd tear me to pieces and wouldn't have a problem with doing it. There is one point where he uh, um, 
stands behind Electra's father, who's seated, and puts both his massive hands on his shoulders, which is um, something that uh, he did as Minute in uh, Sin City um, a, couple, a couple of years later, Frank Miller again. And it's a really excellent way on the comic page, but on screen here as well, to show the intimidation that this character can bring when he, he, he effectively has Natios entirely in his grasp at this point. And this is just after he's given his best line in the film, uh, which uh, kind of informs on his entire character. It just seems like a sort of a trailer moment for him to say it, but when you read into it, you realize that it's, it's how he's been able to make excuses his entire life. I've been in this business a long time, and you know what I've realized? Nobody's innocent. Nobody. That line... Reflective though it is of his character, in that he, you know his whole life he's not been innocent, and he therefore transposes that onto everybody that he meets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's directly contradicted by the church, which is called the Church of the Innocents, or the Church of the Sacred Innocents, or something like that. So the implication there is basically everybody in that church is innocent so everybody in that you know everybody in that community they are innocent and they're the ones he's going after they're the ones whose lives he's making hell and he justifies it by saying nobody's innocent actually had um, issues with Jennifer Garner uh, in this film and um, they were probably compounded by the Electra movie which at the moment ranks at the bottom of my uh, list of 30 Marvel movies but watching it again with as clear eyes as I possibly can the dramatic side of things she doesn't really do too bad on at all it's the fighting that felt kind of limp and stagey and lacking in impact I think it surprised me because I'd seen her fight in Alias and she's badass in that better editing just the fight coordinator really isn't all that good or specifically it could it could simply be down to the playground fight which is cringe inducing but when they're sort of like they're doing it's, it's like a little fencing they're sort of like love tapping each other and um I think this is another one of the reasons that people find Ben so intolerable in this film because his smugness goes into overload of this fight. Well, this is the the difficulty with this scene, and 
What I find a little bit frustrating about it is what is conveyed by this fight is quite important because they've gone from meeting and him hitting on her and him hitting on her using his blindness as a chat-up line, which is pretty skeezy in the grand scheme of things. Um, but, she, you know, she doesn't let him get away with it. She is courteous and apologetic when she misses the point, but, you know, she's quite firm about stop following me. Um, then something has to happen to get her to go from uh, you are not worth my time to you are worth my time it, it can't just be a quick flip but I don't think that this was the way to do it oh god no, no there, there are easier not sorry, easier there are more elegant ways mm. of bringing these two together yeah. than a really like a I think when I was a 15-year-old boy, I would have thought, I'd really like to meet a girl that I could fight in a playground. Mm. But if you look at the way they, they square off against each other and, and in the middle of a film which has gone out of its way to try and make everything look real and grounded and mm. solid, uh, they have uh, a Stylistically dark. Okay. It's not... It's, it's real in the way that action movies are real. Okay. Nah, that's a fair point. Careful. I mean... Uh, <laughs> The Nolan Batman films are real in comparison to this. Yeah, he's not wearing hockey pants. Yeah. I'm not wearing hockey pants. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, you know what? In comparison to Bale's Batman voice, the Daredevil voice, even though it, it is chewing out shit like that light you see, that's not heaven, mm. it, it's less ridiculous. I think a lot of that just comes down to the fact that Affleck can't be asked to open his mouth all the way. <laughs> Maybe so. Um, but yeah, sorry, you, you were saying that the, uh, the film was endeavouring to be as realistic as possible. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. That's not quite what I meant. Realistic uh, to a 15-year-old boy who really likes new metal. Indeed. But the, the fight scene, it, it looks like they've transposed a Street Fighter fight. No, because Street Fighter has impacts. Right. When they... Uh, sort of, she takes the... the come and get me pose and he throws his cane up in the air and catches it yeah the beginning of a, a round one exactly what? that's that <laughs> okay that yeah that's deliberate i'll give yeah. you that but it but actually it looks silly the combat feels more like buffy yes i never liked the fighting in buffy that's why i, I had know. misgivings about joss whedon's combat proficiency for the avengers and they were completely unfounded because now that we've had the avengers specifically now that we've had black widow this fighting is weak source and also, Joss Whedon can probably now recognise that he has the money to hire fight coordinators who know what they're doing. I've just realised what Scarlett Johansson whispered to um, John Favreau during Iron Man 2, during the uh, boxing match. He was like, booty boot camp, foxy boxing. She went, remember the fighting in Daredevil? That was weak sauce. Would ya? <laughs> and he's like, yes, okay, I give uncle, uncle. But he wasn't involved in that. That would be a little unfair. I wasn't even involved in that. I know. Yeah. Um, it's unfair to compare her unfavorably with what's happened in the past 10 years, but it is a contributing factor. Mm. Yeah. But she was one of the... Uh, the. But, I mean, th The Matrix happened, like, th four years prior to this. And that showed a lady-shaped death machine. And His... how much work has Carrie Ann Moss had since? That's a fine point. 
That is a very fine point. But Jennifer Garner hasn't exactly lit up cinema. I think no. she uh, did some rom-coms and some dramas, and she was in Juno, which was excellent. Um, and she was extremely good in. Yes. <clears throat> However... But outside the fighting, yeah. as a character, mm-hmm. um, I think I... The film does suffer a little bit from isn't electric cool syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I trying do... too hard to present a uh, a tough girl. Yes, however, tough but feminine. Given the alternative, which is screaming and repeated kidnaps, kidnap screaming. Yeah, held on a high place and dangled flag. Frankly, flag trophy. Um, you know, somebody who who doesn't have any. Um, plot to speak of of their own i mean one of the most important things about electra as a character in my opinion is the fact that she has her own storyline things happen to her that are nothing to do with matt not many Um, things but yeah well no i mean you look at the fact her her mother was killed by somebody who's involved in this crime syndicate thing that's probably linked to her her father's involvement with it um her father gets gets killed and although matt gets involved in that it's not because of him it's not due to her link to him that she is placed in danger it's to do with things that are her life um are in her life before she even meets him um she makes decisions and she takes action even if they're poor decisions or dangerous actions it's her making them and that's really quite significant absolutely she's uh she's also proactive when um her father is killed she goes looking for the killer she doesn't just uh cower absolutely but there's there's also some really nice little dramatic touches in there when she picks up the gun i really like the fact that she keeps going until she's dry firing and she Mm. you know shoots a couple of times before she finally realizes this is futile and, and puts it down even though her death is violent and horrible, there's no question that she is fighting Bullseye to the bitter end. Agreed. There, there is no feeling of... Um, she doesn't quit, basically. She, she doesn't give up. Even though when she realises who Matt is, the mistake she's made, that Bullseye is probably going to kill her, that she has nothing left now, she keeps going. How can you see into my eyes like open doors Leading you down into my core Or I become so Also, for the longest time, I felt uh, that her realization of the character had screwed up the character of Electra. That is still the case. However, 
Looking into the character of Electra in retrospect, there actually wasn't that much there to begin with. Not much that's appealing to sane people. She's psychotic in the original Miller comic, as are most Miller female characters, as are most Miller male characters. Um, the average audience wouldn't be able to relate to Electra and wouldn't really mourn her death. What they did was they smoothed off the edges of her, they made her far more appealing and uh, somewhat gentler, more fun-loving. They made her actions straightforward and not just sort of out of nowhere. Like um, when Frank Miller rewrote the um, uh, Daredevil origin in the Man Without Fear miniseries in 1993, the moment Matt meets Elektra, she goes into an alley dressed in a big fur coat beckoning in five rapists and then murders them all with her bare hands for fun. An audience can't get with that. That's too far off the crazy wagon. And to that end, they kind of had to sacrifice the Electra character, inject something more human there, and then take her away. To that end, the only real shame is that they brought her back in such a subpar film. And I think they did succeed in terms of humanising her character. I mean, the the relationship between her and Matt, oh, and it hangs together so much better in the director's cut. Oh. Well, they re-edit a whole section in the middle so that it actually doesn't make much sense at all. No, not not in the way... It, it still kind of does if you remove anything deeper that it's meant to imply. But if you look at the way it's supposed to inform on Matt's character arc... It's all wrong in the theatrical cut because his mood goes backwards and forwards like a flipping ping pong ball. He seems like somebody who doesn't know what he wants. Um, to how, how do we abbreviate this? Um, it's around about the time when Bullseye is introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the theatrical cut, after Bullseye is introduced and then kills the racist old woman with a peanut, Matt goes and beats up the guy from... Breaking Bad, what's his surname? What's his name? Hank. Matt goes and beats up Hank from Breaking Bad, and the kid cries, and he goes, I'm not the bad guy. And then it cuts to the next day when he gets the party invite with Foggy. And then after that, it cuts to him meeting Electra. They go up on the roof, and then Matt hits the, hears the sound of somebody beating somebody up. The fight he's already just avenged by beating the guy up. And so we're in this weird Mobius loop. And in the theatrical cut, she says, stay. And he does. And he has sex with her in that cringe-inducing sex scene, which is really, really funny, especially if you put on the audio description track that was put on for visually impaired people. Matt strokes Electra's hair and removes her over-the-shoulder boulder holders. He parks the pink Cadillac. She polishes his Oscar. I wondered why that wasn't put on the Blu-ray, but then I realized that visually impaired people wouldn't or, or, or blind people wouldn't necessarily appreciate the HD. They might like the new audio mix the Blu-ray version got, but they'll probably keep hold of their DVD either way. And you can't hear the audio with the commentary, so... Twisted but true. In the director's cut, after Bullseye's introduced, he meets Electra on the roof. She says, stay. He doesn't. He goes to solve... He goes to avenge the beating, beats the guy... Then there's the party invite. Then it cuts to the party. So the whole sex thing doesn't happen. So there's much more of a knock-on effect of 
Matt wa- wondering why he's making himself so emotionally unavailable without the sex to complicate things and make it seem like he doesn't really know what he wants. In the theatrical cut, it seems like he goes off and has sex with Elektra because Foggy tells him, go grab a spoon. So then when she sees him at the party in the director's cut, as she's supposed to, that smile is more of a sort of, you came. Let's forget about the fact that you left me on the roof in the rain, shall we? Well, they address that. He apologises. She says, you're here now. That's what matters. Yeah. It's not much, much better, but it makes more sense. And this whole middle of the film is completely different because basically uh, the, uh, there is a protracted investigation just as he's finishing on this first day when we see the average day of him as Matt, the lawyer, then him as da- Daredevil, the vigilante, he hears a, a woman being murdered and it's um, she's actually seen crawling in the same room as him because that's how his audio acuity works. He, she's practically there dying, but he can't do anything about it and thus goes to sleep tortured because he's unable to save everyone. And he spends the rest of the movie, a substantial portion of which was entirely cut out, trying to uh, solve this murder. And the murderer turns out to be Leland Orser, Wesley, the lackey of uh, the Kingpin. And that's how he gets to the Kingpin. And that's how the whole film, it, this, it seems like this subplot of how he gets to the Kingpin. And as Captain Logan said, that's not the subplot. That's the plot. <laughs> yeah. They cut that out of the film to speed up the fight scenes which now make less sense than they did before yeah. and at the end where he says haven't you heard words out of the kingpin how is that out on the kingpin what proof do they have do they have any evidence how is this going to stand in court words out on the kingpin i don't know nothing to do with me and the whole point at the end of the film that he now has faith in the legal system to an extent that he has faith in the church to an extent all of that comes from his faith in Electra and if their relationship is not hard fought and hard won it has a lot less impact speaking of impact Colin Farrell as Bullseye the second best thing in this not because he's a particularly good actor but because it's such an eccentric performance and he's so jittery and all over the place that he's memorable and funny and he's in it just enough to not become obnoxious and um, I suppose they get you on side with him because he starts off by killing people who are horrible 
First of all, he kills this unpleasant fellow in a pub who tries to welch on his bet. But he also does it in a particularly stylish and amusing way. And we should feel sorry for him, but for some reason we don't. Then he kills the racist old woman on the plane who won't shut the fuck up. But in a way that, because we've all had peanuts on a plane, we think, I I could probably have done that myself, actually, were I to possess this skill and complete moral ambiguity. Oh, there's no ambiguity about it whatsoever. It's a moral vacuum. It is a moral vacuum. He's completely vacuumful. (laughs) Yeah, no, but he's fucking beyond psychotic. He seems to enjoy her death at that point. But like I said, because she's racist, it's okay somehow. Then he kills Frank Miller, which uh, plenty of comic fans are wanting to do, (laughs) with a pen in the head. Oh, the irony. Yeah. Could have beat him over the head with a typewriter, I suppose. But yeah, like I said, because he's kind of fun to watch and eccentric, it's all you really need from a henchman, I suppose, in an entertaining movie. Yeah. They do go overboard when it comes to the motorbike bit because he gets up on top of the motorbike and he's sort of surfing along on it. And it actually, it's during a bit of Rob Zombie music, which is one of the worst parts of the soundtrack because it's just so, like, balls in your face. Can you feel it the perfect day? Unfortunately, it does have an obnoxious soundtrack. You had a real issue with the music, didn't you? I don't know, because some some of it I like, despite it being obnoxious. Let's let's go through it, shall we? Right before your eyes is Huberstank, that's when young Matt is training. Eh, Forgettable. Hang on by Seether, that's what he's listening to when uh, he turns it up way... He turns it up to 11 to drown out the traffic when he's in his apartment. Learn the Hard Way by Nickelback. I fucking hate Nickelback. And it was during this time that everyone was playing Nickelback on the radio all the time. And it's playing in this biker bar. And they're supposed to be like big, hard, tough bikers, but they appear to have the taste of a 14-year-old boy. Yeah, they they went really out of their way to show you how disreputable this bar and its patrons were so that when Matt slaughtered everybody, Mm. uh, you wouldn't feel too sorry for them. But yes, the musical choices, there's a bit of a discrepancy there, I think. Yeah, Nickelback, not a good band. Chad Crocker, complete fucking bellend. Um, (laughs) Lap Dance by Nerd, or N-E-R-D. They're a horrible band. It's got horrible lyrics. And I can't not go... It's such an awesome way to introduce the kingpin. I don't know what... It's, it's, it's equal parts awesome and horrible. It, then immediately, Top of the Morning to You by House of Pain, which were way not fashionable at that point by then anyway. Again, totally obnoxious. Again, horrible lyrics but somewhat appropriate for the fact that they're introducing a very violent Irishman. Then you got Rob Zombie's Man Without Fear thing, which doesn't make any sense because it's uh, it's playing for bullseye, going, I am the man without fear. <laughs> then you got a double dose of Evanescence with My Immortal, 
and bring me to life. Now, I bought the Evanescence album after watching Daredevil, and I had it, and I played it repeatedly, and Evanescence are brilliant, and they suck. (laughs) (laughs) And I can see why they suck, and that's why I love these two songs and a couple of other ones. I like the one, Now I will tell you what I've done for you. Listen to that album. That was the soundtrack to my 2003. My 2003 and my 2004. Then you got at the end, Ugh, Won't Back Down by Fuel and The Calling with For You. Just this awful, like, Won't Back Down is way too fucking rock for Daredevil himself. And for, The Calling is way too fucking for, for Daredevil. It's just so tonally all over the place. And the soundtrack is awful, equal parts awful and totally appropriate for this film. So it's a weird one. But I do recommend getting the soundtrack. Just I've given you the list there. Using iTunes, reorganize it into the uh, order it was on screen and then get rid of the songs that were inspired by Daredevil because they weren't inspired by Daredevil. Drowning Pool was not in this film. Uh, you had a problem with the sound editing itself, didn't you? I did. It, I think it becomes less of an issue as the film progresses, but at the, at the start, um, they have some really nice tricks um, when young Matt is coming to terms with his um, hearing change and they use some similar techniques when jack murdoch's having his um title fight where because obviously he's been hit in the head and things are becoming very muffled and his ears start to ring and um so i was kind of into the idea that sound was going to be really significant in how the film played out oh hang on amendment it's drowning pool featuring rob zombie for the man without fear okay so that makes the song even more obnoxious and Drowning Pool are on the soundtrack. Carry on. And then it got to the fight in the bar. and With Learn the Hard Way from Nickelback. That's the one. And all of a sudden... <laughs> Never made it as a wise man. Couldn't cut it as a poor man. Oh, God. There aren't enough toasters in the world to fall into Chad Croker's bath. I quite like Nickelback. <laughs> you used to play like rock star, didn't you? Yeah, uh, no, 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 not rock star. All the albums that I had were pre-rock star. Oh, you like the one that uh, I want to cover you, Jenny, on the face. I don't even know which one that is. They <laughs> <laughs> kind of all blend into one another after a while. Yes. Anyway. Do. I don't know what got into me that night, but I seem to be a very deeply angry man. I don't obviously really want Chad Croker to die from a toaster in the bath. That would be a terrible thing for me to actually wish and say. I'm just using ridiculous, horrible exaggeration for comedic effect. But there was a really good uh, episode of the Idea Channel where they posited that um, people who hate Nickelback, not all of them, but a lot of them, might just hate the idea of Nickelback and the popularity of Nickelback and the omnipresence of Nickelback, at least during that era, more than they hate the actual band themselves. Anyway, their episode on Is Pop Music Holding You Hostage? Absolutely essential YouTube viewing. So it gets to the fight in the bar and all of a sudden, 
all of the sound editing skills seem to go completely to pot. Yeah. And the impact are happening are at gone. different times. Well, yeah, I don't know whether it's because because they did totally recut this scene for the, the theatrical edition. And I didn't notice with the director's cut whether the sound editing had improved at all. But basically, you get things where Matt hits somebody, and very there's obviously. A punch sound. There's a half a second, and then you hear the impact. And given how dependent he'd be on sound to continue fighting, you'd think he'd want his impacts to happen at the same time as he hits people maybe there's a slight lag because of the disorientation that matt fields know it's actually because they were in a real real rush to finish and the edit just got chopped and chopped and chopped yes i think you're and thus the right. sound suffered as a result there's um i can't remember exactly where this happens but he um uh, he takes out his billy club and um throws it out to extend hit somebody with it and then you hear the whoosh of the extension <laughs> and it's like that was way behind and the bit where he jumps up and like rotates around the ceiling fan it's it nauseatingly bad the cg in this as i think i said you said as a rule anything you know a human being couldn't do with that frame is bad cg and you could you don't even have to ask yourself is that cg it just is manifestly so you can't hang Ben Affleck off a ceiling fan, <laughs> although you can try. <laughs> I can try with Chad Croker. <laughs> oh, my God. But, but, I mean, you kept picking this fight up as a really bad example of the CG, but there's much worse further down the line. I actually when think... he bounces back and forth off the fire escapes at the... Oh, it, oh that's, just that's before probably... he meets Electra and she tries to kill him. That's probably the worst, but the motorbike scene where he bounces off the front of Bullseye. Anything oh. with Bullseye in it is really awful because that's, because, yeah, that's they couldn't not the Colin skin. Farrell's head. Yeah. That's a weird, like a cue ball with a face. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Daredevil in action is really quite cringe-inducing, especially since we've seen so much great action ever since. And following Captain America the Winter Soldier. A lot of it is bad. There, there are a couple of bits that are quite nice, and um, I, I really quite like the, uh, the fight on the rooftop at the end between um, Elektra and Daredevil and then Elektra and Bullseye. Um, it's and a I, three-way. Evidently. But it's okay. Um, <laughs> but I, when, when she emerges, that was... It's a tiny thing, but the fact that she's basically cutting through laundry, it's like, you know, here I am surrounded by the trappings of femininity and I'm just going to slice through all of that lot and nice. stab you in the shoulder. There may be a subtext. Do you think? <laughs> Do you think? I kept trying to check her shoes, but she didn't keep her feet still long enough for me to see. I think she's got, like, slight heels, but not... Yeah, they probably didn't focus on... Well, they never focused on the heels and went, look at the sexy heels. No, because that's not the point. It's it's yeah. meant to feel brutal and horrible and like she's in pain. And when that's happening, you really don't want to be lingering on a woman's footwear. Or nipples. Oh. <laughs> yeah, true. A uh, couple of... Uh, well, this is it's, it's packed with uh, little details and things. They name-checked various Daredevil creators and people who have contributed to them along the way. Uh, they name-checked Miller, Mac, Bendis and Ramita, all during the uh, boxing fight. Um, he's even fighting Ramita. That would be both John Ramita Sr., the uh, guy who uh, who drew him in the uh, 60s and 70s, and John Ramita Jr., who later drew him in the 90s. Uh, Jose Casada, 
the unrepentant rapist is Joe Casada. Like he was head of Marvel for the longest time and is still a major honcho there. Um, I'm not sure why you'd want to be named. You'd want that character to have your name. That makes no goddamn sense. It's like basically, um, what's the equivalent? It'd be like James Cameron saying, yeah, call, call the child molester in this movie, James Cameron. In fact, I'll do it myself because I write all my scripts. Kevin Smith obviously uh, wrote uh, Guardian Devil and uh, Bullseye and Daredevil Target, uh, uh, guested as a character named Kirby, referencing Jack Kirby, who, by the way, provided the Billy Club. The Billy Club. Let me segue to that. I asked you, how did Daredevil slash Matt Murdock come across this Billy Club? And you said... I said you can get custom-made uh-huh. canes. Which fire out a piton and long lengths of cable. That would be a bit more difficult and to arrange. And extend and turn into, like, pool cues. <laughs> and or, what appears to be the case is he's actually got two sticks. He's one, got several. Yeah, one which turns into, like, a staff, the other one which turns into his cane um and the other one like the the cane one also fires out the the cable so that he can do the spider-man style swinging it's really confused and confusing if you actually start to think about what this thing does this is not like um that the web shooters where you sort of imagine that the web fluid can be contained in a small polymer sack and then once it's out it's out in this, it's an enormous length of uh, cable that then sucks back into this stick. And how, how did, did Matt make this? Did someone make it for him? You can't. Like, if you're blind, you can't make something like that. It just it, you you can't. Well, you could. There are a lot of extremely talented blind craftspeople who make some incredibly intricate stuff. But what you uh, remarked on was the obtaining the bits and pieces to put these things together would surely be remarked upon by somebody. Yeah, much like the ears in Batman. Um, I can I can understand him maybe sewing together his own costume. In fact, he did that in the uh, comic because he he can feel the fabrics very much. He likes soft fabrics, bright colours. Um, but here's the thing: why does it have to be his cane? I mean, I know in the comic that was like a thing, but they weren't really thinking, and it was the 60s. In this, he's walking around with a really distinctive, like, walk, like blind man's cane. Like, that is bright a bit... burgundy with a special crest on it. Everybody who sees it is going to remember that fucking thing because it's so ostentatious. And he hasn't even seen how eye-catching this is. That but, is a bit like Bruce Wayne walking around with the utility belt holding his jeans up. Yes, it's exactly like that. And it gives away, this is something very significant. And then if he meets someone after dark and he's Daredevil and he's holding that thing, they're going to fucking remember that and immediately tie him up with the blind guy they saw. There is no way he could protect his secret identity with that. And why? Because he doesn't ever need to go from being Matt Murdock lawyer to snap, jump into a phone booth, switch to Daredevil. He goes home. Just leave the stick at home. Use a regular stick. It doesn't make any sense. And it even, it's part of the plot. Because in the director's cut, that's how um, Joey Pants, Joe Pantaleone's... um, Ben Urich Urich ties him up with Daredevil. Which does sort of undermine uh, Urich's 
journalistic keen journalistic intelligence it's like in the in the theatrical cut he does seem to sort of put these pieces together out of next to nothing um and be quite sharp about it all in the director's director's cut cut, spoon fed yeah he gets hit with this cane and he's like oh that looks awfully familiar yeah um, I, I did like Joe Pantelioni, and he is shortchanged by the theatrical cut. Again, he gets a lot more to do in the director's cut, and he is—he uh, becomes um, Matt's man on the street. He becomes sort of a, an accomplice in bringing down the big guy, uh, and, and he is integral to the plot. In, in the theatrical cut, it's almost like he's the journalist who should do his job, but he doesn't. He presses his magic delete key, which, unlike every other delete key on the planet, slowly deletes everything with one press. If a delete key did that, writers would scream lots. There's no way to just highlight it. I was oh, going to say because no one may ever use a mouse in a in a computer on a film. Well, you don't need to. Control A, delete. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Kevin Smith turns up as Kirby, and I th- I love Kevin Smith, and he was uh, great fun and charming. But like I said, a lot of people would figure him as fairly obnoxious, uh, same as his turn in Die Hard Four Point Naught. Um, Frank Miller turns up for like a half a nanosecond and is killed with a pen. Interesting, he turned up in Sin City. Do you remember him? No. He was the priest in the confessional. Oh, God, yes, of course he was. Worth dying for, worth killing for, worth going to hell for. Joe's Coffee House, I can only infer from this that that's referring to Joe Casada. Karen, um... Matt's assistant in the theatrical cut plays a bit more of a role in the director's cut. She's the one who works out that uh, M-O-M, on which they found in the dead girl's apartment, upside down is W-O-W, Wesley, Oscar... Wesley Owen Welsh. Wesley Owen Welsh, Leland Orser's character. Um, and so she effectively solves the case for them. And does a little eye smile, and she's very charming. Karen was a major love interest for uh, Matt Murdock, uh, and uh, features very heavily and tragically in the Guardian Devil storyline written by Kevin Smith. Heather, who talks to him on the phone and says, Matt, you're not emotionally available, and she's damn right, is another one of his long-standing girlfriends. Do you know another fairly prominent Marvel character who slept with Matt Murdock and uh, carried on with him for a long, long time? To the point where they almost made a TV series about the two of them in the 70s? Black Widow? Black Widow. Now there's a pairing, especially with the Netflix series coming up. Ooh. Which will most definitely be overlapping with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yay. Yay. Stan the Man Lee cameoing as the old man saved by Matt Murdock uh, when uh, uh, in the original comic he was supposed to save an old man from being hit by a truck full of a nuclear isotope because nuclear isotopes do everything back in the 60s and toxic waste gave him his uh, special power that was again that was adapted in the turtles that they got covered in toxic waste and mutated it's the same and the toxic crusader indeed so yeah um that's kind of Daredevil related. Uh, yeah, so Stan Man Lee. Um, according to the DVD commentary on the theatrical release version of Daredevil, Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock's cousin, is in the bar fight scene. He's the one who says to uh, unrepentant rapist Casada, hey boss, who the hell is that? Unfortunately, he didn't do the old eyebrow thing, which may, may be a family thing, maybe not. Um, Coolio 
is in this film, but only the director's cut. He gets entirely scissored out of the theatrical edition again. Uh, he is the uh, guy blamed for the death of the woman, and they're trying to clear his name. It, it becomes far more focused that Matt Murdock is trying to only work for the downtrodden and will only work for them on principle if they're innocent, even if they may be flawed to a jury and have things that society deems to be character deficiencies, such as drug addiction or an affinity with crime. That was something that I really liked, actually, that um, it's, it's kind of a reflection of, as we've discussed previously, Matt's lack of faith in how the legal system works. Um, but the fact that he keeps coming back to this idea that, you know, just because a woman is a drug user or something of a party girl or, you know, any of the other numerous reasons that people have been known to come up with for, well, then if she got raped, it's her own fault – He's he's not up for any of that. He's basically, look, horrible things happen to people and they don't deserve it. And it's not right that people who think they've got power and think they've got uh, superiority think they can get away with all this. Mm. <clears throat> the red stripes that are on Matthew's uh, blind man's cane, you uh, astutely pointed out, especially in England, indicate being deaf blind which is to uh, not be able to hear as well as not be able to see. Uh, it's not across the board, and it's not quite so prevalent in America. But I think they just wanted to get a bit of extra red in there. Mm. But yeah, you, you know, it's, it's, that was a, a fairly small thing, and like you say, it's not standard. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, finally, it would appear that Heineken gave an enormous amount of money to the uh, producers at Fox because uh, Jack the Devil Murdoch is drinking it and then they're drinking it in the pub uh, with this is just like a Heineken sign uh, where Bullseye's playing darts. Uh, and by the way, that's, that scene's actually supposed to take place in New York and um, it's supposed to be... He gets introduced in this awful dickish airport scene where he's just sort of swaggering around the place and he's like, you know, leaving all of his weapons because right? like, like his toothpick and his paperclip and he's like throwing it in the face of the, the airport security staff. Bearing in mind, this was only a few years after 9-11. We actually went to the airport uh, in 2003, like the same year this was released and they had like the fucking army there. So yeah, you don't get to act like the dick that Bullseye acts like. They wouldn't let people carry nail clippers on the plane. He goes on with shurikens on his belt. I don't think they'd even let him get away with his earrings. They were way too pointy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a scene where he's uh, uh, playing darts. We're supposed to be in an English pub in New York, which is possibly why the guy says, Irish piece of trash. In England, we don't say piece of trash. No. Doesn't make any sense. Not. And also, that would explain why it says pub in a neon light in the window, which in this country, you, you don't wouldn't tend need to, to see. advertise since there's several no. pubs per town and everyone knows what a fucking pub is. Um, but yeah, the scene, when he gives him the, the several pounds uh, for the bet, it was actually supposed to give him motorcycle keys because that's how he gets the motorcycle. But ah, we needed a really strong way to introduce Bullseye, and this beats the shit out of the airport scene. Although it is kind of funny the way that the dog, um, who's supposed to sniff out Bullseye's creepiness and obviously being dodgy, goes, not me. It's an actual dog, and it bows its head in shame. Okay, so that's two instances of Heineken. But the most 
unlikely instance of Heineken is at this awesome Nachios ball. Like, the ambassador's reception is noted for its Heineken. This shitty-ass lager. No way is Nachios serving that. Agreed. And even if he is, no way is Yurik drinking it. Yeah, he's got more taste than that, surely. Oh, here's the other thing. Yurik's supposed to work for the Daily Bugle... Uh, but I believe he has to work for the Post, which was owned by Fox instead, because they, of course, can't interact with Spider-Man. But imagine if back in those days they'd actually had like a little nod to Spider-Man at the end of this one, like in the post-credit sequence, like Daredevil's, Daredevil standing on the rooftop, and then whoosh, Spider-Man comes down and lands next to him and goes, huh? And then they just like exchange a few words, and then they both go vroom, off into the camera. The entire world is revealed. Oh my god! If they got that sorted out, then we'd have had like a an early Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it would have been mostly shit because they hadn't really worked out what was bad yet. So we should be grateful that they didn't. I suppose, kind of, except for the fact that. Spider-Man is still owned by Sony and they're still jealously guarding the rights. I've never been so happy that a statement I made on a pre-recorded podcast is now out of date. And X-Men is still owned by Fox and they're still jealously guarding the rights and Fantastic Four ditto and it's that we're still suffering from the after effects of that shite. I say suffering, it's just that we don't get as big and expansive and cool movies that we want. Boo-hoo. We got Avengers 2 and 3 and more. Okay, so what are the weak points of both editions of this film. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, okay, the theatrical cut, um, it's not that it makes no sense, but there are threads that appear to be somewhat loopier than they ought to be. Yeah. The flip side of that is that although the director's cut clears the sequence of those threads up, and although I really like the uh, Dante Johnson plotline that was entirely removed for the theatrical cut, um, the scenes that are part of that plotline are a little bit too lengthy, and um, some of them are a little bit the tone doesn't quite sit right. There's one in particular, um, and I can't remember exactly what happens in the scene, but basically, oh yeah, it's the one where it goes from Foggy being an idiot in the courtroom and making a mess of things to something really heavy happening with Electra. Like, oh, it goes to the funeral, that's it, of course. Oh, so it goes, it goes from this silly courtroom. So you're in mid-chortle. To and play, From mid-chortle to my immortal. Absolutely. Thank you, folks. I'll be here all week. Tip <laughs> <laughs> your waitress.
Um, so it's it is far from perfect. And what are the strengths of these two films? Because they really do feel like two films, don't they? Um, or one film and three quarters of a film. I suppose that, in a way, would depend on how you're looking at it, because I like the fact that in the director's cut, Matt is more brooding and more isolated and... Darkness! No parents! Yeah. Totally uh, is! He totally is. I um, he says to Electra at the uh, funeral, I know how you feel. And she's like, no, you don't. Actually, yes, I do. I have no mother. I lost her at an early age. I have no father. He was brutally killed in front of me. So, yeah, I fucking do know, actually. However, then at that point he says, don't go looking for revenge. It won't help. Wait a second. You haven't had revenge. You get your opportunity for revenge at the end of the film. You can't really dictate to her whether this revenge will or will not help. You've gone looking for revenge and meted it out onto other people who didn't necessarily deserve targeting for it. If it didn't help, it's because it wasn't the right kind of revenge. You can't... You're not an accurate... Gage on this one. Even if you killed Fallon, which never gets mentioned, by the way, he's the guy who uh, who would have been uh, the kingpin would have been working for at that point, pre kingpin. Um, and by the way, if he hadn't killed Fallon, at that point, Fisk was the weapon. Fisk didn't decide to kill Jack the Devil Murdoch. He was told to, and thus did. Really, the person he should be angry with. Is Fallon, who never gets mentioned again. He was an old man when Matt was a kid. I'm assuming he died somewhere in the interim. Exactly. That is relevant. Because it means Matt can never truly have revenge. Exactly. That's part of the plot that should have been there. Matt gets geared up for revenge, and oh my God, it's Batman Begins. And he has that taken away from him. Then he goes off and joins the hand slash League of Shadows. Oh my god, ninjas! So you see where the Batman pedigree kind of crosses over. It's this weird kind of um, like, like Miller incestuous family of dark superhero vigilantes. Even though Batman's not a superhero, he's a empowered vigilante. Well, technically speaking, so is Daredevil. Nah, but he's a superpowered vigilante. Hey. Yeah, all right. Yeah, there you go. I'd revise that statement in more recent times and say that Batman is a de facto superhero, obviously one of the most well-known superheroes in the world, whether or not he has powers or not. Uh, he's uh, technology-assisted, much like Iron Man. But even when he's not, he's a superhero because of what people perceive as superheroes. And you folks are going to love our seven most important superhero movies of all time episode coming very soon. If, if nothing, super balance. If nothing else, he has sonar, and this was one of my gripes. In fact, this is it was like not, Batman sonar? This this was not improved by the director's cut because he says exactly the same line. My hearing had sharpened and gave off a kind of radar sense. You uh, mean sonar? <laughs> oh God! Yep. Okay. I think that may just come down to the script stage and uh, Mark Stephen Johnson, by the way, who sounds like somebody who killed someone famous. Um, Mark Stephen Johnson uh, probably missed that at the scripting stage and didn't really follow up on it. A strength, though, is the detail. 
There is lots of detail in this. Um, I mentioned before the uh, visually impaired consultant on this. If you listen to, uh, there's like a, a, a little piece about him on the DVD. There's little things that he says about how many different types of waves he can hear on the beach and the uh, sand under his feet that he can feel the different types. That Stuff like that makes its way into the film and filters through. And sometimes even when Affleck delivers it in cheesy fashion, you realize that actually came from a person. That wasn't just made up by someone who thought, oh, that sounds really cool. And the way Matt Murdock lives and his you know, folding the money in the, in the uh, different directions so that he knows what bills he's handling on a daily basis. His, um, the little braille tags on his clothes. Little things like that that don't make their way into crappy blockbusters because they don't have time. So even though the theatrical cut there rushing 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 it's still got those details in there that's what appealed to us back in 2003 that's why we defend this film yeah the rubber spots on the keyboard so he knows where he's putting his fingers the yeah. fact that he has a braille printer in the office all his uh, law books and everything are all in braille and foggy can't read them which is checked pretty much everything to the point where there's no point in this movie that i can think of when i'm like hang on a second he's supposed to be blind how come he can do x oh there's one. Oh, there's one there's one moment, right? right. Whenever he's yeah. walking around an unfamiliar area, yeah. he has. Uh, oh, he's I've got, got another one. <laughs> okay, uh, he's he's got one hand on Foggy's shoulder, or Foggy's got hold of his sleeve, or something like that, so that he can he can guide him around areas that he doesn't know, or he's using the cane to to work out where he needs to be. Um, when he walks out of the Kingpin's office, which he would have no familiarity with at all mm -hmm. he walks very confidently strides out of there i i just i think there would and be the water had turned off at this point so it couldn't even be like he could yeah. see the door because of the water senses absolutely yeah that oh, was one of the other ones effects. that i remembered those yeah. water effects by the way i love them i think that looked really really great i think it was even better on fisk at the end because they took away um the drops bouncing off his eyes yeah he had empty eye sockets and yeah. that was thus terrifying and that's what jennifer garner would have looked like when matt looked at her unless she has raindrops bouncing off her corneas and even then you wouldn't get the detail of her eyes there'd be empty orbs she does look beautiful but that's not what matt would see so that's one of them the other one that it's like, wait a second. And this is a fucking pure trailer moment. And it's so stupid and it's so gormless and it's so related to the crow. People know what I'm think talking about now. Um, and it doesn't make any sense. And they probably just left it in because it was in the trailer and they didn't really think about it. And when they eventually did think about it, they're like, this doesn't make any sense. We'll put it in anyway. The double D's flaming on the ground. What the fuck is that actually about? He killed, he allows Casada to be butchered by this train, cut in half, and then while his corpse is reeking on the tracks, and for some reason the train doesn't stop, he goes, right, my job here is done, gets out his small container of kerosene, and starts artfully doing two double Ds on the floor of this stinky old tube station. And gets them absolutely perfect. And then goes, right, well, let's hope that somebody likes these then, and walks off clicking his heels like the devil he is. What the living fuck? Why not just write it on the ground? Just like D-D, with a permanent marker. Also, why mark the kill at all? Does he ever do it again? 
does he want the police to chase him and charge him with murder? I think he wants to be notorious as someone who will kill criminals to strike fear into the hearts of the superstitious and cowardly lads. There's easier ways! It feels like he hasn't been doing the Daredevil thing all that long because he's so easy with killing, and yet he's covered in scars. Again, really nice detail. Um, When he's like pulling his teeth out and he looks so dead inside that it doesn't really match up. So that, I suppose, is a weakness. But at the same time, it leads to a strength, which is that you buy, at least I buy, how utterly blasted uh, Matt Murdock actually is and how beaten down by life and how dead inside he is from having to uh, live out this dual identity and how little genuine satisfaction he gets from carrying out and meeting out this cold justice. And at the very end... He has faith in the legal system and he leaps around on the buildings and he's going, I'm going to be a guardian devil and I will use my powers only for detective work and to maim or seriously injure but not to kill anymore and I know who I'm supposed to be right now and I have more faith in the legal system but I'm also daredevil and I'm going to carry on doing this and I'll probably be beating up thugs and I'm a little bit confused as to who I am still. That's the end of Daredevil. But they leave it on a sort of a big swooping note so that you feel like it's a big decisive move. Basically, this entire film can be summed up into a single line that John Connor says in Terminator 2. You can't just go around killing people? Why not? Because you just can't, okay? Trust me on this. That's pretty much Daredevil. (laughs) So I think that sums up Daredevil. As we said at the very beginning, I have proceeded to say again in as many words, um, uh, It will not convert anybody watching it again if you hated it the first time. But if you weren't entirely sure why you didn't like it, you might feel a little clearer now. And and you may be convinced to go back and see it again. We we honestly recommend checking it out. The um, director's cut can be had for absolutely nothing on DVD. But it is pretty awesome to look at on Blu-ray. So if you want to take the plunge, it's not too expensive. (laughs) It's a penny on DVD. No, that's not too expensive. Yeah. And it's like, 
it cost me like a uh, fiver on Blu-ray, but it's uh, it's gone up to like seven pounds eleven plus postage. In anticipation of the digital drift review. Anywho, so I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And neural, neural handshake, handshake complete. complete. Justice. I can be that man who saves